What do you do when you tell everybody something and you realize you got it wrong? I'll talk with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and Sirius XM about that and more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 22nd. It's show number nine of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Tuesday Tout edition for you. We'll have a feature interview with Todd Zola, discussing how to issue Mia Culpas, his drafts so far this year, Tout Wars weekend, all those player moves, and his boons and banes. It's another big Tuesday Tout edition. Glad you could join us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Todd Zola's in the house. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout Edition, part one of our expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, Sirius XM, and many more. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, PD. You've had quite the array of guests since we've last talked. Yeah, it's been pretty pretty good, and it got a bunch more coming up this week, and then yeah. uh, going to take a maybe take a little break the week after. Going to do a little trip to the Dominican Republic, and then come back, and we'll have all kinds of guests and shows and fantasy baseball talk all for the rest of the year here on baseball hq radio so it's going to be an exciting year i'm really looking forward to it uh let's start by, with you by asking how many drafts have you done this year so far and how many more to come i've probably done around 10 and i don't think i'm counting my best balls in that because i mean well they're drafts but i'm done i just get to look at the standings of those and i did a few of those partially for fun and partially for research so I think I've been around 10. I've, my, I've cut back on the high stakes and um, so that the number's lower than normal. And what do I have left? I've got my home leagues left, and th- that's probably a little higher than it should be at this point. But I've got a few home leagues left, and I'm um, looking forward to those. Um, a lot of them are keeper leagues, and this is the year, as they say. You mean you've been building uh, and rebuilding yeah. your teams over the years, doing the dump trading and all of those maneuvers, and now you're ready to go for a, a pennant? That's that's the plan, they say, so we shall see what happens. But, yes, it's been a little bit thin through my um, my keeper leagues lately. So, yeah, hopefully um, everything comes to fruition at once. But we'll see. I mean, 2020's oddity kind of put a damper on some of this as far as building and what leagues did. But now it's time to put the pedal to the metal and see what I'm made of. Are those money leagues? Yeah, but they're not, I mean, they're not huge money. You know, they're, they're, it's, there's, a, there's some, uh, the, the, the Rotowire uh, staff league, I don't, it's, it's under $100. It's not, I mean, nothing to, nothing that's really, you know, there's a few jelly beans involved. But um, yeah, I, the, the, those are within my, my freelance budget at this point. And what's the oldest home league that you're still in? Uh, it's football, unfortunately. Let's see. What's the oldest baseball league that I'm still in? And I don't, yeah, it's not going to be anything impressive. It might at this point. I think it's the one that's run by Chris Olson, uh, Baseball HQ. We call it the New England Rotisserie League. And it's. I, and I'm not sure how long it's been at this point. Double digit years. But, um, I, yeah, my I, my football has been around since the the 80s, if you will. But yeah, I don't have any baseball that'll wow the listeners. 
Tell Wars is probably it, you know? Yeah, that's my longest running league. I tell people now that Tell Wars, I consider that to be my home league because I haven't, since I moved yeah. a couple of times, I haven't been able to hook up with anybody. Uh, I actually had a chance earlier this year, somebody on the uh, Baseball HQ forums private messaged me and said, you know, we got a league going in Toronto, but I, um, Sending me something by that message forum is not the best way to get a hold of me. You know, I I, I don't look at it that, as often as I used to. You know, you need to either text me or, or um, send me a regular email to to my email address, uh, radio at gmail.com. And the, this guy sounded like a pretty good league. It was a National League only um of auction based and I think it was about seven or 800 bucks to join and top three, you get paid kind of thing. And it was a keeper mm-hmm. league and just exactly what the doctor ordered. So it sounded right. like it would have been fun. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get in on that. Uh, since you've been obviously commissioning, commissionering some leagues, playing in some leagues, monitoring some leagues, administering mm-hmm. some leagues, uh, you must have a, a pretty good idea by now of what the shape of drafts has been this year. We have a pretty good idea. I know that closers are going higher than we expected and more expensively in auctions, and that drafters are boosting steel sources. Uh, I've seen you know, guys like uh, Miles Straw going a, a lot earlier than you might expect. And uh, I've seen those five category players really being boosted up, both as far as uh, drafts and auctions go. But have you seen anything else early in the draft season that you think um, drafters might still be missing? The, the the thing that I've noticed, and I think that it has to do with all the all the different nuances that you just mentioned, there is less adherence to the ADP than I've ever seen. Now, we talk that you shouldn't. That doesn't mean people don't. Uh, I've seen less adherence to the ADP, and I know the only ADPs out there, NFBC, well, not only, but the primary one is the NFBC leagues. But even so, uh, I, I think it's because there's so many different team builds going on early in drafts that people need to fill in their rock, their construct later, you know, to to account for not having speed or having speed or whatever it might be. Uh, I think, I think that's one thing that's, and I like that. I, I like uh, not, you know, not I, to me, the ADP is a guide, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. That's not what the point is, but I like when, when, when drafts, you can't rely on the ADP because I think it makes people uncomfortable. When do you take, you know, they get nervous. When do they take their people? I like that. The other thing I've noticed is I think, I think multiple eligibility players are, there's so many of them. But I think they're I think those they're going at a at a, at a premium as, a premium as well. You almost have to purposely not draft multiple eligibility players in order to end up with none. And I'm, I've done that a couple of times, and I think it has to do with the fact that they're falling a little bit single eligibility players. And I'm jumping on the on the dip and making up for it later with some multiple eligibility. So. That's that's what I've noticed at this point anyway. And we're not, you know, you mentioned earlier we're we're no longer early, as you know. This is uh this is the nitty gritty. It is the nitty gritty, and something you said made me think of something else about multi eligibility players. I think I've seen in a f- couple of the drafts that I've been in, and then listening to the other drafts that are going on, or reading about them after the fact, is the various experts leagues. Is I think I'm seeing a little bit of an opportunity for. Uh, fantasy managers who are in drafts to target players who aren't multi-position eligible now, 
but are very likely to become multi-position eligible very quickly. And the example I, I could pops to my mind right away is Trevor Story. He's going to go into the season shortstop only, but within the first week, he's going to have second base eligibility in Boston. And that increases his value at least somewhat as far as being able to move him around. Now, it would be better if he was going from second to third or second to the outfield rather than from one middle infield position right. to the other. But there right. are players who are going from uh, one position type to another, but they haven't done it yet. Oh, for sure. And I, I actually, I was thinking about this specifically, thinking about will anybody pick up third base eligibility, just because um, it, it it gets thin. And the interesting one, and it takes a certain temperament, et cetera, and people are going after Bobby Witt anyway. But with with shortstop and second base being so deep, if you can grab Bobby Witt as your middle infielder. And if what Kansas City is saying is true, and he breaks camp as the third baseman, to me, I was I was sort of out on Bobby Witt's price previously, but if he is going to gain third base eligibility early in the season, I may be in at that price. It's definitely a reason to look at a player not necessarily as something that you're going to boost him two rounds over, but it certainly could be a tiebreaker in the in an instance where you have two players that you like about equally well. That's one of the yeah. things that can go down on in the ledger on that guy's side, that possibility of, of multi-position eligibility, or even better, the knowledge that it's going to happen. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Todd Zola for Masters Ball and ESPN and Rotowire and SiriusXM, and heaven only knows where else. We'll catch up with all of that a little later. But, Todd, the weekend that just passed was Tout Wars weekend, although several Tout drafts actually took place earlier. Uh, which drafts were done over Tout weekend, and why do they call it Tout weekend? It is called Tout weekend because there are four, four auction-style drafts, and we start up on Saturday morning with the American League auction draft, which you were participating in, you participated in. Right. Followed up by the 15-team mixed auction in the afternoon and into the evening. And then this is when we normally would be going to Foley's, but we didn't get to go to Foley's because, well, one, there's no more Foley's, unfortunately, and um, we weren't in New York. And then Sunday morning, we're all hungover, at least some people should be, if, if they followed suit and, and, and drank Saturday night anyway. Um, and then we have the NL draft, NL auction, which I'm, I participate in. And then we wrap things up with the uh, ever-exciting 12-team uh, mixed head-to-head auction, which it's just, uh, to me, it's just a fun group. And it, it's, I administer that. It's just a fun fun group to, to watch go at it because it's serious stars and scrubs. And then our friend Ariel Cohen just saying, nope, 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 not going to do it, not going to do it, and just filling his roster with $20 players. Your friend and mine, Gene McCaffrey, once told me here on Baseball HQ Radio that the idea of even having a, 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 a pricing structure for a 15-team mixed is impossible because it's it's irrational. All the pricing is irrational. How much more is yeah. that going to be the case for a 12-team mixed? Well, uh, we I just talked to Paul Sporer on XM a little bit and uh, – I told him I was disappointed in his group because there were only 56 $1 players in that league. There have been up to 72 $1 players. Show me a valuation system that spits out 72 $1 players. Yeah. And, and yeah, no. And I, you know, HQ listeners, the, our audience, 
are familiar with Rotolab and there are sliders on Rotolab to artificially increase the upper end of the pool and, and take the, the budget away from the bottom, bottom end. But it's, 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 it's artificial because you, you don't know. I mean, it's, it's, to, it's to push people's mind closer to what the prices will go to. There's no mathematical basis. So, you know, so I mean, this is what, 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 what the wise guy Gene was, was getting into is, yeah, you can come up with, air quote, what the potential earnings are. But that that's, doesn't mean that's what the players are going to go for. So people have asked me on my own software, can you can you can you emulate that and, and and push the numbers up? And I say, you know what? I yeah, I, I guess I could, but to me, it just I'd rather explain to you and write articles and do podcasts explaining. I I'm good, but I can't read minds. I don't know what people are gonna what we're gonna go for. You just have to understand that prices are going to be higher in at the high end in an auction, and the reason being, you're going to make it up at the back end. And if you're confident in cherry picking, you know, $10 players and getting them from one and two, then join the crowd. There's no such thing as overspending. It, 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 it's, a, it's a fixed zero sum economy. The, everybody has the same budget. It, you know, there's no, uh, there's no fourth tier salary cap penalty tax going on in fantasy baseball. So that makes me wonder what you think of Ariel's approach. Ariel Cohen, of course, very, very disciplined auction player in all formats. And one of those kind of guys who is pretty much not going to go too far above what he has projected the value to be. And if everybody else is going stars and scrubs and you're the only guy or maybe one of two guys in the 12 who's sticking to their guns, going for those middle value guys while everybody else is sitting around uh, wondering they're down to dollars with, uh, you know, six players left or something like that. Is it possible that uh, Ariel's approach could work or has worked because he's the odd man out in a situation like that? Yeah, it has worked. I mean, we've got a a couple years running now where Ariel has either won the the, the head league or been, you know, it's a playoff bound league. So you do have that variance, but he's always in the, he's always in the hunt. And so it does work, but so have, Clay Link, who's the other end, you know, they, they, they both work. Now, I play the middle game as well. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about my Tut Wars team, and I try to get away from it just a little bit, not as, not, as, not as successful as I was in labor, but I play that middle game. And it's, 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 it's not recommended for the first time you do an auction because if you don't have the timing, if you don't have the bookkeeping, if you don't have the confidence to be able to – know when to when to jump into the fray and you know you can get i think we've talked i mean you can get you know 23 players that are you have priced at 15 and you can get them for ten dollars and think you you know you got five dollar bargains of 23 players but you've left thirty dollars on the table so you you still you're still not it's that's not optimal the 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 key to the play the middle style mike gianella does it i do it there's other people that do it as well is is just knowing, you know, looking at what the available inventory is relative to what you have to spend, and getting in at this at the time where there's still an adequate inventory to fill in your roster spots. And Ariel generally has done a very good job. He's an experienced auction player. He plays. He's had success in the NFBC auctions. So this this is not his first rodeo. Tell was head to head. Uh, it's just, it, I've seen people and I was wondering, cause we've got a few new auction players this year and especially in a, in an, in an online remote scenario, I think it's more likely to occur 
I don't know. I just, it just maybe I'm wrong about that. But I was just curious to see would someone get caught with leaving a bunch of money on the table? And to their credit, no one did. And they, I think, I think five dollars was left on the table in the in the head to head. And there's usually somebody with twenty bucks just because they think that all right, I need to put six six dollars for this guy, seven dollars for this guy, and they end up going for a buck and they end up leaving some uh, some budget on the table. I've always thought of the auction as kind of a combination of planning, reacting, and trying to control your emotions or listen to them sometimes, I guess, if, if they're telling you something that you really need to know. And it, that's to me, what makes it much more interesting than snake drafting, frankly, is that you, you know, you have ac- access to whatever player you want. If you're willing to pay the price, you're not locked out by virtue of having the 13th pick in a 15 person uh, draft. So how, when you're out there doing the auctions or when you're watching people who are good at doing auctions themselves, what's the balance, do you think, between planning, reacting, and emotional control, discipline? Yeah, it's, I, to me, there's a little bit of this is league context, uh, format context, with the difference between the AL slash NL only in a mixed league where there are there's, there's more avenues to take in a mixed league just because the inventory avails it there's just there's just not a, you, there's not as many there's general strategies in the in NL but it's tougher to switch midstream because the players just aren't there to to satisfy what you end up needing to do but at, you know we've we've had to be remote for 3 years and maybe I'm you know overblowing this in my head but I'm not a I'm not a good poker player, but I do like to be live at the auctions because I do like to, you know, s- survey the room, see reactions, see what people do. Uh, we talk about tells when you're bidding in poker. I think there are tells when you are going for a player that you want. Some people pick up their pen and start clicking the pen, and uh, I, you know, I think there are there are tells and and. We know individual player, uh, you know, team managers' tendencies. Larry Schechter gets to a point where he's nom- if he nominates a player, he wants him. Uh, it, it's having done so many auctions, either with Larry or watching, uh, administering it. I just know there's a point where that's his style, and, and you know he knows the number. And if it's there, it's there. If it's not, it's not. Um, so I think that it, it, it there is something to the human nature aspect of auctions. And if it's not, I don't care because I think there is. And I like that aspect. <laughs> it makes it funner for me. So even if I'm just, you know, all wet about that, I don't care. You know, it's it, it makes it more enjoyable for me. As you mentioned, I participated in the Tout American League draft on Saturday morning and uh, I had to pivot my strategy. And ordinarily, I think if you, it depends on when you do your pivot to how mm-hmm. successful you're going to be in it. And I pivoted after like the first four nominees because right. relief pitchers were just going for prices that were way beyond what I was willing to pay, not just for the top guys, but even as we got down into sort of that second tier, I think there were six or seven uh, closers. All of them mm-hmm. went for 22 or $23, almost all of them 23 and one or two twenty two, And that was just more than I had on my budget. So uh, unfortunately... I can't make that pivot af- before that fact because I don't know what's going to happen. And when I make it after the fact, I have to change my whole strategy pretty radically. 
as far as how am I going to figure out saves in this draft and what I eventually pivoted to was I just ignored them and I'm punting for now and hope to build up sur- surpluses elsewhere that I can make enough trades that there was a right. couple of other very low saves guys in the league so it may be a case where if I can get 10 I'll get three points out of the deal and meanwhile as you've always said uh, you know um, bully the hitting by uh, by managing the pitching and I think that's possible to do. Right. I just talked to Jeff Erickson about his Tout Wars team, and he paid money for Ryan Presley, the first closer off the board, but he did draft Joe Barlow and Drew Steckenrider, so you, you, there could be a trade to be had there as well. You can, if somebody lucks into one of their closers as a speculative play and they paid for a closer, well, you know, the, the, trade, the, the trade winds could be blowing, and contrary to popular belief, there is trading in these, in these industry leagues. Um, and I think that that, that will be, be there for you. And I kind of did the same thing in NL Tout. It wasn't – I didn't swerve from that. I kind of went into it. First of all, the 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 save the save landscape in NL – I mean, there were six or seven reasonable closers in the AL. There's just, they're just not that many in the NL. And Will Smith was off the board, and when Ian Kennedy and Mark Melanson are on the same team, even speculative players are, 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 are thinning out. But um, you know, Jeff pointed out that he got Presley as the first closer for 21. And of the group that you talk about, only Liam Hendricks at say 20, I think at 23, you know, air quote, better, better deal. You know, I mean, but you just you just don't know where Price where Presley was the first one to come out. I think it was the first overall nomination. You, you know, will that set the bar? Will that will that be the the high point or the low point? We just don't know. And Taking the first closer in a mix in, a, in, a, in an auction is always a risk because you don't know where the prices will fall relative. You know this is going to dumb. Of course, it's one or the other, but either get a nice bargain or you you get burned. Well, get burned it means you have to pay to full value, and in some cases you have to go over, especially if you're the last guy getting a closer rather than the first. I got burned because the point I'm making. He was the first closer. I think it was twenty four, twenty six, something like that. And I, it was below what my price. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to take a chance. And it turned out that even the second best closer only went for 20. So I'm, I got burned because he got hurt. That's aside. I also got burned because I, he was the first closer. I took him. And had I waited to see, you know, okay, that, that's, the, that's the price. Okay, that's the most expensive closer. Everything will be below 20. I said to myself, geez, I would have paid 28 or 29. I better grab him. And so that was the, that was the mistake I made. It was my first year back in the AL auction after, uh, after Lar passed, Lar Michaels, and uh, kind of took his seat. I was in the mixed, uh, the mixed labor until that point. So um, I you know, kind of learned my lesson, at least in that room, is don't take the first closer um, unless, unless it's just even an incredible price. Use that you know, as, a, as a guide to see where the next ones are going. And in labor, I don't think – I, I think I went the Barlow's again. I think I went my standard Barlow route. The Barlow brothers, uh, sort of sitting the Barlows, yeah, yeah. I don't know. (laughs) Every, you know, I mean, I said yes, they're speculative. They they are. I'm not going to deny it. And maybe this is confirmation bias or whatever uh, cognitive uh, bias we want to call it. But I I I drafted them so much. I keep looking, you know, where where am I wrong? And I just I don't see anybody else on either team. And and I I think that they're going to be the guys. So I mean. I prefer, you know, to not have as that much, you know, I don't know, subjective 
interjected into winning and losing fantasy baseball. But maybe maybe that's why I'm not always successful is because I'm not willing to you know inject a little subject subjectivity into my plan. That I'm too reliant on. I need a safe guy. I you know I need to. I, I can't. I can't accept this risk. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Another aspect of tells, I think, and one of the ones I rely on a lot, and it kind of disappears when you're doing your drafting or you're auctioning online, is the pace of the bidding. I've no, I've played with players, and I know players that when they're bidding slowly, they want the player. When they're bidding fast, they're trying to push the price. And once you recognize that, and if it seems to be a reliable tell, then you can actually exploit that and maybe catch a guy bidding on a player he doesn't want because he thinks he's forcing you up and, and things like that. And the other thing about closers that caught me off guard in, in tout was historically it hasn't gone this way. You, whenever we play in leagues that are of long standing with the same players year in and year out, you start to kind of learn guys, their tells, as you mentioned, but also you learn that they have certain ways that they approach certain positions and pricing and so forth. And this year in Tout American League anyway, that model flew out the window right away with all of these closers, even the second tier guys going for, you know, low to mid twenties, where before they would have been 16, 17. And I think the fact that that caught me off guard was something that I should have been better prepared for, but you know, it is what it is. And you kind of think, well, maybe the first three or four guys will go slightly over where I have them, but then the market will fall down and we'll all be competing in that 17, 19 range. Nope. They just all kept going to 22 and 23. I think it has to do with, it's just a huge drop off. There's usually a gentle decline. And you mentioned the six guys. I think the next six were, you know, 10 you know you went from a $20 tier to a $10 tier there were there just there weren't there weren't those guys in between that you could jump on you know at different levels I think that might have something to do with it as far as uh what you're talking about there and I mean I kind of giggled when you're talking about the pace of bidding because um I had someone comment to me that they could tell that when I when that I wanted when I was bidding they could tell I wanted the player because I always bid so fast and if they're listening now, they'll hear the truth. But I'm, you know, I'm not going to give away my trade secrets or, or, or the truth at that point. But uh, the reason was, it, it's, I didn't want to get caught in lag. I didn't want to be the guy that keeps clicking the button and doesn't, you know, you play the going once, going twice, you know, 22. You can do that live. You, you don't want to do that when, when when electronics are involved. So I was bidding so quickly to get the to get my bid in. That's so it wasn't. So anyway, if someone thought that well, Zola wants this guy. If, and if, if, you know, if they, if that affected their game plan, whatever, but the truth was, I didn't want to get caught, you know, get caught by artificial intelligence burning me. The other thing about uh, the, the draft software, and I've played in three different platforms and all of them have their pluses and minuses, but the one we were playing on, uh, in Fantrax, one of the things that I've, I noticed the first couple of times we played it over the years was that when you hit that plus one, you know, to raise the bid by exactly a dollar, it's just going into the system and being buffered. So you might have pressed it at, you know, 18, thinking you're going to 19, but four other guys also hit plus one a microsecond before you. And so all of a sudden your plus one goes from 18 to 23, which you had no intention of doing. So it's almost like Jeopardy, where you have to know exactly when to press the button so that you get in with a plus one dollar bid rather than a two, three, four you know, or more bid, if everybody happens to hit that plus one at once and you're the last one who gets registered or buffered, you're in trouble. Which is why I've noticed it too, which is one of my favorite ploys is if I like a guy at 22, 23, 24, and it's at 11 or 12, 
I'll bump it to 19. And someone may accidentally hit it to 20. Actually, that even that, my numbers aren't right. But my point being, um, if I actually if I like him at 19, I'll bump it to 19 because in if it goes higher than that, uh, then fine. The guy he's going for more. And it, so sometimes people get burned on plus one. If you get burned by plus one on a on a jump bid, like you mentioned, it's bad. It's good if you put that jump bid in there. Now maybe I could have gotten the player at 17. You know that's always part of the part of it. But if you're happy with the player and and I, I was I think, who were we talking with? Because uh, a couple of people in the in the Zoom chats, even though we are still you know we are a skilled group, we've been doing this for years. Bidding to the you know going over the 19 and the 29, it's still it still holds true. There is a psychological roadblock to hitting that bid that be, that ends in zero. And every year I print out the bids, and it's very easy on Fantrax and sort. And every year I haven't done it yet this year, uh, doing these things tonight. Every year the it, it just it, it's tr- I, you know I, it's still worth talking about because it still happens. Bid stop at nineteen and then stop at twenty nine. I remember during the tout draft, you were the commissioner of it and running the draft. And I remember you saying that during the draft. Oh, it's another bid that stops at the nine, and it was it was starting to become fairly obvious. And then you and then you actually said it out loud. And I thought, hey, he's right. You know, it it <laughs> seems like everybody's stopping at the nine. But I don't think that happens as much in live auctions as it does in these online ones. And I could be all wet. I don't have any you know evidence or scientific proof that that's the case. But it just feels to me like it's more common in the in the click bidding than it is when you have a chance to speak out loud. It doesn't seem to be as influential. I think it's, well, it's been that way for years. Um, there are some people that I know don't care, you know, that it just, I, I just know them and I, I've seen it and it, you know, uh, it just, it, that means a number is a number. Then there are others that are a little more meticulous about it. It's, it's, it's just one of the fascinating aspects of auction drafting. Well, Mike Tyson said everyone's plan lasts until they get punched in the face. So in your draft, uh, the uh, National League tout, did you manage to bob and weave enough to pretty much execute your strategy mostly as you planned, or was it uh, everybody overboard and let's uh, <laughs> throw up the different sales and get the hell out of here? No, we. Uh, I like, like you, if I'm going to make a, a swerve, I want it to be early. And I, I always go into a draft with, uh, you know, spend a lot plan, don't spend a lot plan, et cetera. I usually end up not spending a lot. And I, I was prepared to spend on the the top end in the in the NL Tout Wars. I actually spent the AL labor bit. I, I spent $90 on three players, which is sort of out of my out of my comfort zone. But I, and I was planning on doing it, but I wasn't going to spend the 45 on Juan Soto. Yeah, he's worth it in, in an air in an air quotes. But I don't like the NL back end of the NL pool enough to find those uh, nice, nice supplementary players at the end. So the the swerve was literally. I mean, I'm not lying. I was going to spend early. It didn't work out that way. So the swerve was back back to the back to the old Zola about being the patient, you know, playing in the middle, um, and then trying to figure out where where the soft spots are to take advantage. I had already gone into the uh, into the proceedings knowing there were just a bunch of corners and outfielders that I liked, and let's call it the I don't know eight to fifteen or sixteen dollar range that you get in the end game from you know three to ten. I knew I wanted to to make up if even if I did spend early, that was where I was going to get my bargains from. So I knew I was going to get that. But what I other noticed, the other thing I noticed was 
at least in my mind, and again, everybody prices players differently, and I may just have landed on three pitchers that I just am more favorable for than, than other people, but I thought there was a soft spot in the pricing of not the aces, but the next level of, of pitchers. So I spent a little more than I planned overall on pitching, but I was I got three guys in the 20, 18 to $20 range who I thought were low 20s. Um, again, it might not be the – it may be more reflection of one was Zach Wheeler, so maybe I'm less concerned about the the early slowdown and that it's just a, a slowdown and not an injury lingering. And I think Logan Webb was another, and, and some people, the lack of a track record, I saw enough in the underlying metrics to – to think he's going to keep on, keep on keeping on, if you will. There was a third in that range. I forget uh, Louis Castillo, who I'm not happy with the news that came out today, or today being. I know we don't necessarily drop today, but I know that the Louis Castillo, the the news about the sore shoulder has has bummed me out a little bit. But even him, I, I thought that this was. I knew I would be living in this range because the prices were lower than I expected um, relative to the aces. Well, we will indeed be dropping this pod uh, shortly after the there conversation is over. So you're right on time with the Luis Castillo uh, notification. Now, one of the sort of fundamental principles of tout is to help fantasy baseball managers all over the place at every level of play to think about the game, to give them some hints and tips by watching what these uh, experienced players do. There's some rules discussions that go on. There's some controversies that go on within the leagues. And the idea is that tout can be a helpful way to learn more about the game. So how can listeners get a look at the details of the various tout drafts if they want to get some skinny on pricing and draft strategy? Where do they go and find all that information? Now, all right, so this, there's, a, there's a current way, depending upon when people are listening, all these drafts are publicly available from Fantrax, uh, and you can go to toutwars.com to get the links, and you can see the the, the teams and the, the the either the the the, the prices, etc. Um, my project for today is I'm going to convert all these drafts to a Google sheet, Excel type Google sheet, and put all the all the, the 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 drafts and the auctions all in one sheet, all seven leagues. And that will also be available on, on Tutwars.com. I don't want to promise that today. Uh, I hope to get that up sometime on Wednesday. So if you want a one-stop shop and you like Google Sheets, it'll be available tomorrow, uh, Wednesday. Otherwise, you can go to the individual leagues on Tutwars.com. One of the things that's nice about one of the presentations is you can actually you can see the order of order of nominations because you know why did so and so go for this amount? You can see, well, it's because it, it came out early. It went so cheap because it came out late. And it, it, it's different from just looking at a at, at a board of that nature. Right? You, you mentioned rules. I think let's let's real quick tell the listeners when they see Trevor Story in the NL only league, why that happened. And what we did there is that uh, at 9 in the morning, we, we froze the pool on each day. And the rule was if the if – the, Free agents could be drafted, and they would you would retain their stats all season long. So Trevor Story was drafted in the National League, and his stats are going to count, even though he's now getting them in the American League, because the information for his signing came out after 9 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, we were we kind of caught a break that 
almost everybody was signed. Tutwars made this uh, ruling before we even knew there would be baseball this year. So we could have had a bunch. And this is in contrast to labor, where Steve Gardner took the top 12 free agents out of the AL and the NL pool. And we're going to have a separate fab session uh, coming up before the season where we use our, our in-league fab. So the 100, 100 units, if you pay 75 for Trevor Story in the AL only, you have 25 fab units the rest of the year. It's going to be, it's going to be wild. Um, so we, we, we thought it was a different way to show the public how they can handle a situation. Now, knock on wood, most leagues will be drafted with everybody signed, but we thought it was our duty to come up with a, an alternative we, means of handling the situation for leagues that, for whatever reason, couldn't wait until what more you know for more information. And to make it clear, we should point out also that Tout Wars has zero dollar bids, which means you can uh, yeah. make a very aggressive fab bid because you're not shutting yourself out. So, for instance, in labor, if you wanted to bid a hundred units, all your hundred units on Trevor Story, with the hope of really shoring up your team you are locking yourself out of the free agent pool for the entire rest of the season. But if you bid your full thousand in tout, you could still muddle along grabbing $0 guys here and $0 guys there. Yeah, tout, uh, Labor does have fab rebate for injured players, which you know, maybe you get back $10, $15, who knows. But they do not allow trading of fab, which Tout Wars does. So yeah, it, it's a completely different wrinkle. And I'm in that boat. I'm in the AL, and I can get out, go after Carlos Correa. I can go after Trevor Story. And I, I don't, and Anthony Rizzo, I don't know. I mean, I plan my team to have a, a, a player to drop without shedding a tear. I have not yet decided on what my bid's going to be. It's an interesting theoretical yeah. question to ask yourself, isn't it? You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Todd Zola, one of the uh, members of the uh, committee that runs Tout Wars and also, of course, a well-known fantasy baseball commentator at Rotowire, at Masters Ball ESPN, on SiriusXM, lots of podcasts, a lot of places to keep up with Todd, and I'm glad to say this is one of them. And Todd, at Rotowire, you write a regular series called The Z Files, and recently you wrote one that I really, it really caught my eye because basically it's a very long explanation about a, how a big presentation you did earlier this year at uh, PitchCon, which is uh, um, Alex Fast's big, uh, um, I don't know what you call it, Lollapalooza or Pitchapalooza or something like that, where a bunch of people get together and talk about uh, pitchers and stuff like that online for charity. And uh, you explained at that session that you had all of these ironclad ideas about exit velocities, especially as far as they affect hitters. And to uh, recently in this column, you said, uh, uh, I was wrong. How are you wrong? And what did you say that was wrong? Yeah, let's give credit. Yeah. Nick Pollock and Alex run the, uh, it, it, it's a similar s scenario to the uh, live or the online first pitch that you folks just uh, put on same idea, a uh, charity event. All right. So, I, I did, a re did some research, and I used old-fashioned correlation, taking every hitter's um, ground ball, fly ball, and line drive ag ag average exit velocity and correlated it to the BABIP, to their BABIP. So I have, what, three, 400 hitters in, in each of these groups. And I found that the correlations between BABIP and the average component average exit velocities was very low. I mean, it, it, it was, it, it basically was, it wasn't random, but it was very, very low. So my knee jerk 
conclusion was hitting the ball hard doesn't mean as much as we think it means. Look at how Rand, you know, the, you know, I, I just lined up every single player's component BABIP and component average exit velocity. And the R, the R was 0.2 or it was just very, very low. And I was like, geez, uh, wow, I guess average, you know, we all think it's better to hit the ball hard. Average exit velocity just doesn't mean much. And you, you mentioned it's more for hitters. To me, for pitching too, it means that you don't have, you know, I'm not as concerned about a pitcher giving up uh, hard contact because it, it's more of where it's hit than how hard it's hit. And as it turned out, I, I mean, I've always been uncomfortable with this. And even in that presentation, I think I said, if someone can prove me wrong, I welcome, I welcome your explanation. Um, I, I find this so out there. Turns out I proved myself wrong um, by, and this came about because I put my foot in my mouth on a tweet, and I, you know, I, and, and basically the tweet had to do with exit velocity and like, well, now you know, now do that without home runs or something to that effect, and it, it still was better to hit the ball hard. And it's like, eh, you know what, I, I, I know these people are, you know, just making fun of me. But I want you know. I wonder if they are right. One of the things that imagine Zola thinking that it's not good to hit the ball hard. All right. Long story short, what I did was I broke down. I used the league numbers. No longer looking individual players. I used the league numbers of exit velocity in five mile an hour increments. So starting literally from five to ten miles an hour, ten to fifteen, fifteen to twenty, and I uh, got the batting average. And when talking about fly balls, I use Babbitt later on, but just a batting average of ball of all the balls hit in each of those five mile an hour exit velocity ranges. And long story short, friends, Zola was wrong. The harder you hit the ball, the higher the batting average amongst that cluster of balls hitting that range. Uh, it's 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 it, it's and to my, my original results, they were what they were, but. It was. It's because the randomness was because the there there's still a, a range where hitting a ball very. And we've talked about this before before Statcast uh, using some hard hit, medium hit, and, and and softly hit data. There's still a range of softly hit balls where the batting average goes up just because there are line drives and fly balls that fall in front of the fielders and ground balls that batters beat out. So it's it's not linear. There's still there's that range there, and the other thing is, not all pitchers that have an 88 mile exit velocity, you know, are, are 86 to 90. There are some that are a wider range of, of velocities, and some of them are hitting the, this lower range where the hits are more frequent, and they're not, you know, they're and they're up in the higher range. So it it it, it gives the appearance of randomness, but each it matters on each individual pitchers where their range is and it's just that that's what that's what adds to the variance uh yes hitting the ball harder matters now i will say that strictly looking at a player's stat cast page and seeing red or blue and making a blanket statement about their profile that i think is 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 incorrect still um blue isn't always bad red isn't always good but it's more, it's, you know, it's more better chance to be true, but it's not always true. You do need to dig a little deeper. So this was lazy. I mean, I'll admit this is lazy analysis on my part, especially because 
it's such an out there statement. I should have, I should have thought to, you know, uh, do a second test. You know, you always want a second opinion. You, it, I've done enough science to know that there's always another experiment that you could do to derive the same conclusion. And that's what I should have done. I should have done my second. Anytime you a research paper, they always want, you know, you need to, you, you have to make sure that those results that you're publishing are the case. I fell short in coming up with my second experiment to corroborate my finding. I apologize to those that saw it. I know Ryan Bloomfield from HQ. Wow, if Zola says that it has to be true when he started using it in his analysis, and I you know, apologize to people like Ryan that may were may have been misled for a while. I talked a couple of years ago about this whole issue with Alex Chamberlain here on Baseball HQ Radio, and one of the things that he said that I think has become fairly widely accepted across the baseball and fantasy baseball uh, industries is you shouldn't be looking at average exit velocity anyway. You should be looking at maximum exit velocity because it's a better indicator of how hard the guy's really hitting the ball in the situations. What did What do you think of that? I think that's I, – I, I, Alex is one of the smartest people I know that – I mean, some it's wrong. It's just plain wrong, okay? Um, maximum exit velocity was one event where – and I, this this is part of the PitchCon presentation that I'm okay with the first 10 or 15 minutes. It's one event where everything aligned. The swing plane aligned with the pitch plane. Uh, the, the contact was at the maximum of the of the bat speed. Uh, more more max more more uh, events of maximum exit velocity occur on ground balls than fly balls. I, I, I don't I don't care how fast a guy hit a ground ball. That doesn't tell me about the player. And if you do the correlation studies, um, maximum exit velocity, it, it correlates a bit to power, but it doesn't correlate as much as fly ball exit velocity. I to me this is one of the, and it drives me crazy because on TV they talk about it. How can, I mean just just you know intuitively you know practically speaking, how can you learn anything from player on one event out of Five or six hundred. It doesn't make sense to me, and the numbers back it up. Um, I've had you know a discussion with people that just have a hard time believing it. You know, if someone can hit a ball that hard, all right, maybe if it's a, maybe they go on your radar, but it does not tell me anything about that player. What about if you were to do some kind of graph or mathematical uh, description of the player's batted ball profile with velocities and tried to identify players who have higher max exit velocities, but also skew to the, to the uh, right-hand side of the graph as far as how many balls they hit are close to that ex- average exit velocity. In other words, if you have a, a exit velocity graph shape that has a, you know, a fairly low left-hand side and then reaches up way over to the right-hand side up where the high velocities are, and there's more of them, maybe if there's some way to calculate the combination of the max exit velocity plus factor in the amount of balls or percentage of balls that that player hits that are near that max exit velocity and not way back down the other way, or the difference between max and exit, I don't know. It seems like there must be some way of, of... Incorporating the number of number of batter balls. I disagree. It's one. It's one event. And think about what needs to go into that one event. I mean, uh, the, the 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 velocity. You, you know, you're chopping a tree down. There's this, you're not. You're not. The tree isn't right next to you. It's out in front of you a little bit. 
so you just you, everything has to align. And again, the more ground balls are hit hard than the fly balls. Now the what you just described too, if the, if you're looking at average exit velocity, not component, uh, you just described a fly ball hitter. If there's more, if there's, if there's if there's if the clusters are high and low, it's because of the elevated swing, the swing plane matching the the trajectory of the ball. Therefore, more energy being momentum transferred to the ball and higher exit velocities. But because you have an elevated swing, uh, you're more I mean, when you hit a ground ball, it's a lower exit velocity. So that 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 kind of that 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 spread. If you were to show me a spread of average of average exit velocities, I'd be able to pick out ground ball from fly ball hitters just based upon the distribution. Now, if you get component wise. There's, there's the distribution isn't as wide because all the fly balls are generally hit a little bit harder because of the uppercut of the swing matching the plane of the ball. When the swing plane and the trajectory of the ball are close to the same line, then that maximum energy is transferred and balls always going down. So that's why the swing going up. Uh, that's why the you get a lot of the uh, the, the exit velocity of, of fly balls is higher than of ground balls. I think what I was more getting at is if I look at a list of 10 players and all of them have a max exit velocity of 115, let's just say 115. But if I look at them, their their average exit velocities, component-based, or I think probably overall, is if one of the players has an average exit velocity of 96 and all the rest of them have average exit velocities of 88, I like the guy with the 96 plus the 115 rather than the guy who has 88 plus 115 because that makes the 115 look to me more like an outlier for that guy's basic profile. I I like the guy with 96 but an 88 anyway. You know, I think maybe it's it, it, it might be that there's three guys with 96 and their their averages are 110, 115, and 120. Which of those 96 guys do you like more? But uh, I'm not even sure that that's useful. It's something that's uh, certainly going to be a cause for us to all take another look at this whole issue and try to determine that, that the combination or the roles that the various exit velocity measures play in figuring out the uh, likely batted ball profile of individual players and therefore be able to create some kind of an idea of what to expect of them in a projection sense. So there's still lots of work to go. Uh, are you planning on keeping after this? Planning on it, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm planning on making more mistakes and correcting them. No, I think there's so much more, and we don't even, you know, we we don't know what data will be available to us going forward. So yeah, no, I love this. I mean, you know, there was, you know, ten years ago, we were having this conversation on medium, on, on soft, medium, and hard hit grounders, or and and talking about BABIP and 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 fluctuations in BABIP and that sort of thing. And, you know, the conversations each year get a little more involved, a little better, just because we have more information to back and talk about. I remember years ago when we were using that hard, medium, soft construction, and I built a profiling system called a positive, I can't even remember what it was called now because we don't use it anymore, (laughs) (laughs) positive something outcomes, relative outcomes. And it it had to do with, you know, a guy getting hard hit fly balls, what percentage of his plate appearances did he do that? Plus what percentage of hard hit, you know, line drives and blah, right, blah, right, blah. Right. And subtract away the amount of medium and soft hit contact that leads to a lot of outs. And it actually worked. It was fairly predictive. But once the data got more granular, 
it seemed like we lost the ability to do that kind of analysis because soft, medium, hard were subjective to a certain degree based on the observations being made at the ballpark by some employee of the, of the statistics company. And people prefer the actual measured velocity to a guy saying that seemed hard to me, but I don't know, maybe, maybe, uh, as it gets more and more granular, I talk about guys like, uh, about this all the time. As the data are getting more and more granular, it may be getting harder to figure out what's going on with them rather than uh, when it was a little more abstract but a little more easy to focus on the various distinctions. Yeah, and now they're going to throw in the shift information and robo-umps and our baselines are are going to be skewed again. We have to wait three or four years before we can trust that we're dealing with apples and apples. Well, you know, there are other realms in our society and in our world Uh, where science is questioned all the time and and opponents of the scientific uh, theories that are out there to explain our world say, you can't trust these scientists because they, they freely admit that they make mistakes and have to go and correct them. That's a flaw. And all the scientists and people who appreciate science like me say, that's not the flaw. That's the exact feature of it. <laughs> that's how science works. Because when you're wrong, you say, I was wrong. And you go and figure out what you made you wrong and try to improve. And many of those players can't play in Canada this year. Many, many of those people can't play baseball in Canada this year. But that's a story for another day. And that's as political as the two of us will ever get on this podcast. No, that's exactly right. I mean, everybody knows what what I'm talking about, but it is true. You know, I think there's a fundamental uh, underappreciation in our world about the way science works and that the the fact that making errors is not an indication of a flaw. It's an indication of a willingness to recognize your errors yeah, and correct yeah, them. Right. And I think yeah. that's a big plus. Well, Todd, this has been super interesting so far. We'll take a quick break here and uh, do some sales pitch for <laughs> baseballhq.com. And we'll come back in a second. We'll talk about some players. Sounds like a plan. Todd Zola writes at Masters Ball and Rotowire and for ESPN, and he appears regularly at SiriusXM, and he's on lots of podcasts. Happy to say, including this one. We'll be right back with Todd, but right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Playing Time Tomorrow roster forecasting, analyst Dan Marcus looks at post-hype prospects on National League Central teams, including Cole Tucker in Pittsburgh. I had him in a draft one year. Didn't go so well. Genesis Cabrera in St. Louis and outfielder Rafael Ortega in Chicago. In alternative formats, analyst Matt Beagle follows up last week's Points League Draft Guide for Hitters with a Points League Draft Guide for Pitchers. That makes sense. And in Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, analyst Brant Chesser, he's in a league with me, looks at five national leaguers including Max Fried, Josh Bell, and Edwin Diaz. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's facts and flukes, performance validation, roster analysis in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We've got those buyer's guides for hitters, starting pitchers, and relievers. The Market Pulse column takes a look at what's going on in the fantasy baseball markets. The Big Hurt looks at injury research, and there's so much more. Fantasy baseball research, plus all kinds of tools to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David with Todd Zola from Rotowire and Masters Ball and ESPN and 
Sirius XM and lots of podcasts. Todd, welcome back to the show. Good to be back with you, PD. Like most fantasy baseball Todds, Todd, we've been focusing on player moves and their effects on fantasy value. And since you're a, a projections guy, uh, you're probably the best man to talk about value changes. Uh, let's go through some of the some of the bigger names and maybe some of the lesser names that have been moving around in the last four or five days and talk about how the moves have affected the values of those players and the other players on those teams. Uh, let's start with uh, Boston. They signed uh, shortstop Trevor Story to a big contract. Uh, what's the effect on Trevor Story's possible uh, output? Well, you alluded to it in the first half of our discussion. One one thing anyway is moving to giving them second base eligibility five or 10 games into the season helps a little bit from, from the raw numbers, even though he's coming from Colorado, um, the, the, the power will dip a little bit, uh, perhaps if, if as a fly ball hitter, maybe not as much the run environment similar. I think it's, it's, it's somewhat of a parallel move. You're not, we're not dropping story as much as we would say Nolan Arenado when he went to St. Louis um, I think it's still a fine landing spot. Um, the line he could, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a pathway to hitting leadoff, which the extra plate appearances could make up for any, any counting stat loss. So if you were on Trevor story before, there's no reason in, in a mixed league. I don't think you're dropping him too much from your rankings based upon Colorado. Plus it's coming off a, a bad season. So that it all depends on how one, you know, bakes that into their 2022 evaluation. A lot of value for Trevor Story comes from the stolen bases, and a lot of value from stolen bases comes from team philosophy and manager decisions. You're up there in Boston. How likely is it that Trevor Story gets a, a, a shot at 20 stolen bases again this year? If he is if he is caught five or fewer times, that Boston likes to use the 75% rule. I mean, not to the letter, but it, it basically, if if your success rate warrants keep continuing to run if, if if the amount of runs created ad, added is 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 more or equal to what you lose by getting caught you're gonna run. i mean mookie betts ran when he was here uh if you've got the speed you they will let you run speaking of colorado they extended ryan mcmahon for six seasons which seems like a huge vote of confidence what does that do to change our perception of his value if anything, it's just in keeper and dynasty leagues, you're you're more likely to extend him, right? If you have him cheap and, and not not being concerned that he's treated elsewhere. So, and it also it kind of he he plays so many positions. Often that's good, but it's often bad. It means he doesn't play any one position all that great. But when they're making that commitment to him, I think you're you're kind of safe that he's going to be in the lineup. Minnesota's really made a lot of noise in this offseason, uh, trading guys and then trading the guys they traded to other places and been very active out there. And now they've signed shortstop Carlos Correa to a three-year contract that I think I read is the richest contract on a per-year basis that any position player has ever received in Major League Baseball. But it's really not a three-year contract. It's three one-year contracts because he's free to opt out after year one, after year two, if he decides that the market would be better somewhere else. So with all of that in the background, what's your expectation of Correa's fantasy value in Minnesota? I think he takes a bit of a hit in in that his he's not as it's not as extreme as Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman in that you know needs the Crawford boxes for the power, but I think he takes a hit in Minnesota. Target field is latently suppresses power, although it's not bad for runs. 
So I think he takes a bit of a hit in that regard. He already stopped running. Um, to be honest, I think I, I'm more enthused about his defense. And I think sometimes we overlook the fact that just how good of a shortstop he is defensively. And they just bring in, brought in Sonny Gray. We've got uh, Joe Ryan and, and, and Dylan Bundy and Bailey Ober. We've got some pitchers that could use a slick fielder behind him. So I, I'm, I, I, I kind of nudge up Sonny Gray a tad and the pitchers a tad more so than Curls Correa himself. This isn't going to be the biggest news that anybody makes in baseball this year, especially in Seattle, but they signed Billy Hamilton to a minor league contract, and ordinarily we'd think, well, who cares? But if he lands on the roster just as a pinch runner, he could actually be more valuable than if he was playing full-time and batting 220 or 210 or whatever it is that he bats. Could get 30 bags pinch running. Perhaps. I don't I don't, I don't. don't know. Seattle, has, has, after the recent trades, bringing in Jesse Winker, sure, there are holes. To me, they already have Dylan Moore to do that sort of thing and more flexible. I don't, I don't see it. I think it's more organizational depth than anything else. Unless, unless we do hear about the uh, the ghost runner coming back, maybe that's his job. I don't know. Texas signed right-hander Garrett Richards to a one-year deal. Anything to be excited about with uh, Garrett Richards in Texas? I think he he just gets gets added into the lump of speculative closers. That's that's how deep this has to go now, is is when you know Garrett Richards showed some some uh, some effectiveness in a relief role with the and 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 with Boston, and although we joked about the Barlows in the first the first hour the first segment, uh, you know he's not proven, and so I think in in uh, Leclerc and Hernandez are both out till mid year and coming back. Who's to say if they're going to be ready to close again? So I think that her, that Richards at least has to be tracked if not uh, you know, a reserve speculation on the off chance that he closes. A lot of analysts over the years have been sort of devotees of Matthew Boyd, Matt Boyd in Detroit. It never worked out really for anybody. And now he's in San Francisco. And of course the appeal there is San Francisco seems to have quite a knack of taking guys like Matt Boyd and turning them into, you know, from dross into gold or spinning straw into gold or whatever that expression is. Any interest now on your behalf with Matt Boyd in San Francisco with those coaches? Uh, what's the, what's the, what's the quote? Just as you think I'm out, you draw me back in. Uh, what's Boyd's, you know, rhetorical, what's Boyd's issue? It's home runs, right? What does Among the Oracle? Yeah. yeah, well, no, I mean, that's the main issue. You're right, um, yeah. Other than keep changing his name. So, you know, those of us that don't have his, you know, use ID numbers get all frustrated. No, but um, it's, it's home runs. So the combination of San Francisco, and I think part of the reason why San Francisco is able to fix these these projects is because of the ballpark. Um, it's more than that, but I think it helps. So yeah, I am now back in on Matt Boyd. He's not ready right away. And, uh, Carlos Martinez. And, uh, there was another, another arm of this nature that, that the giants brought in. So they're, they're throwing stuff against the wall and, and seeing hoping one of them sticks. Um, yes, I am. I am definitely back in on Matt Boyd in San Francisco. I hope, I hope there's a way for me to bench him in Colorado. But I am back in. Uh, Jacob Junis was the other one I'm thinking of. But um, I am I am out if he's in when he pitches in Colorado. But uh, yeah, I mean, why not? The strikeouts are there. Uh, if he can continue, if he can control the homers, sure. Minnesota, we talked about them a moment ago. They signed right-handed reliever Joe Smith to a one-year deal, and of course, then the immediate 
speculation is maybe he could get into, into the closer mix or into the saves mix there. What do you think of Joe Smith in target field? He's getting getting a little older. I, I think he. I think he. I don't think he'll be the closer, but I can see him uh, chipping in in, in in case of an injury. Right now, ah, who knows? I mean, Taylor Rogers is probably the clubhouse leader, but a lot of people like Jorge Alcala as a dark horse. So I can see him. I can see him getting five or ten saves. Now it's just, is he worth being in your lineup? even if he's not getting saves. And I think I don't think we can trust the volume as much anymore. He had almost 40 innings last year, nothing in 2020. So I don't think he's going to have the volume to warrant being in a, in a lineup without getting saves. In Philadelphia, they signed Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos. Seems to create something of an outfield jam where they didn't really need to create one. But um, I've seen some... Uh, Fairly hyperbolic excitement about this, uh, including I read somewhere that somebody said they're now the second best team in Major League Baseball, and I don't know about that. But what do you think of Schwarber and Castellanos both turning up in Philadelphia? It's a pretty good hitters' park, is it not? It is. Now uh, let's pretend that none of us, that, that at least for now, we don't have Zach Wheeler or Aaron Nola or Roger Suarez on our teams. Yeah, offensively, love Castellanos and love Schwarber going to Citizens Bank. Uh, you know, just kind of alluded to the issue is they're both of their best positions is designated hitter. And I'm going to steal this line. And I wish sometimes, I mean, you probably the same way. Sometimes you read a quote or a tweet and you're, you're actually mad that you didn't think of the line because it's so good. I, 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 when For I read sure. it, I, I yeah, I I wish I remember. I wish I wrote it down because I I'm just now thinking this. Whatever someone said that they hope, and I think it was the Mets, but the, the quote was about the Mets. I hope Philadelphia. Again, I'm stealing this. I hope Philadelphia realize that universal DH doesn't mean the entire lineup. I did hear that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was on Twitter. Somebody said that it was really good. Yeah, that was really good. Anyway, so all right, Cassianos and Schwarber. One of them has to play the field. Um, some people wish Reese Hoskins was a D, was was a designated as well. So offensively, love it. Um, either side of the plate, Citizens Bank is really really good. Um, I'm not so enthused for Aaron Nola, uh, Zach Wheeler, uh, Zach Elflin, Ranger Suarez at all. I'm not concerned about uh, you know at, at all and at all. I mean, you know, which they both apply. Texas signed infielder Matt Carpenter to a minor league contract. He's 35 years old, Todd. He's on a three-year serious skid in his OPS from nearly 900 in 2018 to under 600 last season. Is there a rebound here for Matt Carpenter, or is that just wishful thinking? Wishful thinking is Matt Carpenter in Globe Life Park with that jet stream. Matt, that would have been fun. I think it's – I mean, yeah, there's a reason, but I still – you know, Willie Calhoun is still – the the hope at the designated hitter spot. So, yeah, I mean, in a in a twelve team AL league and you know deep reserves, do you take a shot? Yeah, what if? But he's a designated hitter at this point. The Cubs signed one year contracts with infielder Jonathan VR. Boy, that guy gets around these uh, last few years. And a couple of left handed pitchers, Drew Smiley and Daniel Norris. First, what's your evaluation of VR's situation in Chicago as a potential value add for a fantasy roster given the bags? Well, he's on my Tout Wars team, and it's an OBP league. So that tells you I must be expecting something, or I don't understand that OBP, how to, how to calculate OBP, which is probably both. 
I think he's going to play. Uh, David Bodie is out for a while. Uh, he's going to play third. The the it's going to come up in a little while. What I think of the what I think of the Cubs middle infield. Uh, spoiler alert: I really like the defense of Cubs middle infield. All right, so as long as their pitchers can get the hit the ball up the middle, they'll be fine. No, I mean the, the bags. His, his speed's gone down. He doesn't care. He's going to run, and the Cubs have no reason to stop. So, are we looking at? 62 bags from 2018 no heck no but you know 20 bags 10 or 15 or 20 homers nl only yeah i love it i don't know that he's in a mixed league mixed league uh ready yet because of the average and such but yeah i think he's gonna play and what about the two left-handed pitchers smiley and daniel norris you know you know smiley still has that allure I suppose if he's healthy, he you know he, he's still all right. I don't know that I want to invest any draft capital or uh, opportunity cost, but I I will be interested in, in a reserve or if he if I'm streaming in a twelve team mixed league, if I'm streaming, I could see you know uh, churn and burn for someone like Drew Smiley Norris. He's better than we think, and if he he might settle into it. He's tried to settle into a relief role at times, but. I guess I'm not – maybe I'm wrong because the Norris might be better at this point, but I'm a little more interested in Smiley in leagues where the waiver wire is literally the extension of your reserve. Should have mentioned uh, Jonathan Villar is going to go into the season eligible at shortstop and third. Right. Which is a pretty right. nice thing, pretty helpful thing. Yes. The Cubs also signed outfielder Seiya Suzuki to a five-year deal. He was a hot commodity coming out of Japan in the offseason, a lot of wondering about where he was going to end up. Uh, how have you projected his value? And let me ask you this first. How do you adjust Japanese baseball statistics <laughs> to Major League Baseball statistics? Oh, uh, God, Ouija board. Um, the, the studies suggest that the higher level of the Japan League is most akin to AAA, and that the lower levels in the Japan League and Korea are most akin to AA. So, I mean, as crude as it sounds, I take the AAA arc factors and I average them, and I apply those to the upper level of the uh, ja Japanese leagues, and then the same with you know I average AA for the for the. Um, uh, Lower levels in Korea, Korea, yeah, Korea yeah. right? K K KBO and, and the lower levels, and then I, then I, I, I will admit, I some sometimes I, I like to say it breaks the system. There's just no way he's going to be that good, and Suzuki was one, so I had to calm it down. I still haven't projected for uh, 28 homers and approaching double digit steals. The question, the problem being, his success rate wasn't that great, so. It's hard to see how that's going to translate. I may have I may have cut him down too much because I only have him hitting two fifty nine. That might be too much of a of a, a disc, uh, you know penalty. But uh, the interesting thing is, you know, people point out that the recent recent players coming over from Asia have not played that well. Akiyama and Tsutsugo, but they also came over in the middle of a pandemic, right? And it's not just here it's there and it's family so i'm going to give those players a pass even this year Akai, akiyama and especially Sutsugo, yoshi Sutsugo. and i'm not going to judge i'm not going to hold other players to that uh possibility of, of not playing as well so i'm not i haven't plus suzuki is younger and probably better 
So um, I know that Glenn and Rick, uh, Glenn Colton and Rick Wolf will not go after a player based upon their, their roles of engagement, but I'm a little more flexible as far as that goes. And I think I have Suzuki on my, do I have him on my, t- on my top team? I don't recall, but I do. I think I just drafted a, um, a beat Todd Zola league where I do have, where I do have Suzuki. So I am uh, cautiously optimistic. Atlanta signed right-handed reliever Kenley Jansen to a one-year contract. How unhappy should Will Smith's fantasy ban- managers be, and how happy should Blake Trinan fantasy managers be? Um, Smith should be more unhappy than Trinan should be happy. And I mean, I'll, uh, Smith. I mean, Jan- Jansen's closing, right? There's 16 million reasons why Kenley Jansen is closing, and man, that all, Atlanta bullpen is Colin McHugh was brought in there and he could close for probably 22, if not more teams right now. Uh, Tyler Matzik, the hero is probably the setup. I mean, the, the, uh, the, 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 the mop up guy at this point, that's just quite a bullpen. Um, yeah. I mean, Kent Jansen's going to get the saves and Smith will get, you know, six or seven, you know, back to back. Keep in mind, there's three double headers, three or four double headers this year, which is, you know, condensed schedule. So there's going to be a need, for some of these secondary closers to, to get a little, little work. And the thing with trying to now, if this is, again, I mean, everybody reads the same reports I've read. We all have, you know, we all read the tea leaves and are how we want to read them. But Dave Roberts has said that, you know, don't expect trying to get every single save that it's going to be split. But I look at that bullpen and I don't, and I don't see an obvious, well, it's going to go to, I mean, everybody's saying Brazier Gratterall. Uh, there are a couple of names, Daniel Hudson. But you know, none of them are as good as, as Blake Trinan. So I, 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 yeah, if 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 maybe we're looking closer to twenty-five to thirty than we are thirty-five to forty. Um, so yes, you should still be happy. But if you expect Trinan to be your your primary closer in a mixed league, I think you, you need you need a really good second closer, or hopefully he is your second closer. In Atlanta, Luke Jackson and AJ Minter are the fifth and sixth oh. choices out of that out oh. of that bullpen, and they're they're both for, former closers and reasonably successful at it. Yeah, not only that, right? And uh, as for the Dodgers, I think one of the things that even if you cut the percentage of Dodger saves that that uh, Trinan is likely to get, that team's going to win a lot of games. You know, they could win right. 110 games, and if that's the case, then he gets you know his 80 percent of 55 saves or whatever. However, the math works. Exactly, still right, pretty right. good. Still pretty good. Still pretty useful. Uh, Los Angeles also signed left-handed starter Tyler Anderson and right-handed starter Jimmy Nelson. Both get one-year contracts. Where do you think they fit into the Dodgers' plans, which seems to be to build a rotation that consists of 44 guys? Well, I think that they have been burned. They they look at their rotation the past couple years and think that they're set, and then stuff happens, and they're no longer set. So I, I think they're learning from mistakes. And and this is their mea culpa, if you will. Um, you know, we don't we don't know. Well, Kate Clayton Kershaw right now is healthy. Okay, fine. Will he stay that way? Andrew Heaney. All right, we talked about fewer fewer home runs and Dodger Stadium should do that. But is he really going to be the next Robbie Ray? Is a lot of we're contractually obligated to say from the so-called experts handbook. Um, you know, Trevor Bauer is a story unto himself. Uh, Mitch White, Tony Gonsolin. I think they need. Re- I think they need uh, support. I think they need you know a back end uh, organizational depth 
Uh, Denny Duffy's not going to be ready early. So I think Tyler Anderson is somebody who, if you're in a, if you're still in a draft and hold where you need to find you know able-bodied starters in rounds 35 to 50, I love Tyler Anderson in that regard because it's a great place to pitch for obviously a very good team, and you just have to hope that you have enough advance notice that he's going to start to get him in your lineup. Uh, I'd I like you know I'm not as enthused about Jimmy Nelson. We've seen injuries. He had 29 innings last year, nothing the previous year, and 22 the year before that. Um, you know, he's such a such a promising arm with the Brewers a, a few years ago. It just never manifested. Injuries got in the way. But, yeah, give me, uh, you know, give me Tyler Anderson in a draft and hold scenario or even in a deep reserve and NL only. And lurking around to, to take away innings from any of these guys, Dustin May, Tommy John last yeah. May, speaking yeah, of which, yeah. and uh, – so if we give him the usual fourteen to sixteen months to be absolutely recovered, he could he could pitch this season. Oh, for sure, and I think I think uh, the Dodgers are actually kind of counting on it. You know, a nice fresh arm for the playoff run that would be interesting. Um, it was yeah yeah no I, I Dustin May I have him for more than a token appearance in in September. We'll see what happens. Well, Todd, out of everything that's happened this offseason, which trade, which free agent move, which news came out that really upset the apple cart for your projections and had sent you back to the computer keyboard? Um, well, I'm, I'm in the obvious, you know, Chris Bryant. The two, the two areas where, you know, I had to spend the most time was what are the Reds going to do and what are the Athletics going to do? Because they, you know, they gutted their teams and for every player traded, that opens up 700 plate appearances for somebody else, right? So uh, I, 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 I spent more time trying to figure out who's going to get more so in Oakland than in, than in, than in Cincinnati. You still you know, recognize a few of the names, Colin Moran. He's still, you know, okay, yeah, he was once a prospect. You, you know, you recognize them. Oakland, man, I just, uh, it, it's a shame uh, what, what they're going through, and, and hopefully they'll be able to rebound pretty quickly that, so the next movie will have something to talk about. But um, that, that to me, that the the the, the biggest apple cards. I mean, they were kind of alluded to it. Sunny Gray with you know ground balls and Toronto with the uh, with the defense. I think help a little bit, but yeah, Cincinnati and and it came up. It came up in the in the Tout Wars draft. Jake Fraley. I mentioned Moran. Some of these players are definitely NL only boons. Uh, I don't know if did they make the mixed league uh, cutoff, but. Someone's going to, you know, someone's going to, you know, if you want, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, someone's going to take both those at best. Yeah, that's for sure. And uh, I was, I've been thinking about Oakland a lot too, because there's lots of young players who ordinarily I think would be a year away, maybe a season and a half away, who very likely might start. And the example, I took Kevin Smith in the tout draft because he had a great prospect pedigree and obviously he wasn't going to play in Toronto with that infield, especially after what they did in the offseason. I mean, he might have aspired to play some third base and, oh, look who came over to play third base. I guess I'm going to move somewhere else. And uh, maybe he finds himself in, in Oakland with an opportunity. I mean, it's also an opportunity to crash and burn, but... He, he did have the, the uh, prospect pedigree, as I said. Uh, I don't know how 
positive you are on guys in that situation where they could be perceived as being rushed into the major leagues a little bit ahead of schedule because Oakland s- s- literally lacks other other options. But what do you think about players like Kevin Smith who who get this uh, get this trade and all of a sudden vault from being probable AAA material to likely major league material? Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not a prospect guru. I have talked to enough people to understand some of the principles and you mentioned Kevin Smith and the first thing I do is I, I take a look at you know age versus level and he was he's been ahead of the level there are different reasons for that and you need to want to find was he injured did he convert a position was he a college player um, but that you know so the breakout that you, you talk about I think we have to pump the brakes just a little because he was old for the AAA level at the time even so though whatever it was what 24 homers 18 steals something bizarre not bizarre but something eye popping has to get your attention. So I, I agree. The equivalent of, say, a Jake Fraley going to the National League um, and only is, yes, Kevin Smith becomes, you know, maybe everybody hasn't done their homework and you get him cheaper than, uh, than, than what eventually is going to be worth just because of the playing time. And to be honest, it wasn't like I went in with some grand strategy that uh, hinged right. on Kevin Smith. It's like an opportunistic type buy. You know, I have him down for X number of dollars and the bidding seems to be stalling out at half that. And I think, you know, even in an American League only where the uh, the risk of losing play, plate appearances is really dire because there's nothing to replace them with in the free agent pool. But even at that, I thought, you know, what's Oakland going to do? If they if they don't leave it with Kevin Smith, where do they go next? And whatever they have beyond Kevin Smith doesn't look like it's as good as Kevin Smith. So there's lots of situations like that in Oakland and Cincinnati, as you say. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and Rotowire and ESPN, Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. And Todd, as you know, I like to get our guests to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes for the coming year. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are players who look like they could be good value where they're going in auctions and drafts. In the American League, who's a batter who could be a boon? Well, call it a homer pick, if you will, and that's fine. Um, I'm going I'm, I'm to go Bobby Dahlback primarily because the Red Sox did not sign Anthony Rizzo or Freddie Freeman or anybody else to potentially take away playing time at first base. I think the job's his, and I, I I believe in the improvements he made last year, and I, I don't think – it's not like he's being ignored, but I think the, now the playing time being a little more secure, I'm willing to buy. And I remember reading somewhere that he could be a sneaky source of some bags that nobody thinks of with a big slugging, uh, you know, strapping guy like him. But uh, I read uh, in more than one place that be on the lookout for Bobby Dahlbeck to give you, you know, not – 30 or anything like that, but certainly to make a contribution, which can be helpful if you're adopting the strategy of, of you know, get nine stolen bases from everybody and I'll do all right kind of thing. Oh, no, absolutely, for sure. In the National League, who's a batter who could be a boon? Uh, I, yeah, everybody knows the name, but I really like, and maybe Milwaukee wanted a bigger bat, but I like, I like Andrew McCutcheon going to the Brewers. The ballpark's great. Uh, I don't. I, maybe you've seen them on Twitter. The team has fun. They they do like Sandlot imitate. You know, they they imitate or they mimic Sandlot scenes. It seems like a fun group. And I don't think like, I've ever been introduced to Henry McCutcheon, but he seems like an affable guy. I just think he's going to fit in really well, and I think he's going to adapt to the DH, and I think he's going to you know knock in a lot of runs and 
and hit some home runs. I like I like McCutcheon's uh, where he landed. Pretty good hitter's park as well. And you know what? I yeah. th- every time I hear Andrew McCutcheon's name, I, I, I'm reminded of, I think it was the very first time I went to the uh, first pitch Arizona, and I went out one day to watch an Arizona Fall League game, and it wasn't as star-studded back in those days. There, there was the occasional guy who came through. But talk about a, a, a man among boys. He was he had two triples in that game, had two sensational running catches in the outfield. And you just look at him and you think, this guy's this guy's going to be in the big league someday. And unfortunately, I, I was only playing American League leagues in those days, so I never got a chance to, you know, sneak Andrew McCutcheon onto my roster on the cheap, knowing that uh, I expected big things from Andrew McCutcheon. But I like Andrew McCutcheon in Milwaukee as yeah. well. I remember that, and you know what my main takeaway from that is? What's that? We're both old. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's going about as far back as I I think. But gosh, you know, I know it's not time to be talking about first pitch Arizona, but think of all the tremendous uh, players we've seen over the years there. Yeah. Well, the first, the first game I ever saw was with Jason Gray, our friend Tampa scout and Albert Pujols hit a ball. I don't remember, you know, if you remember, if you can think of Scottsdale, hit it over the trees uh, in the berm in left field. It was just sick. And, uh, (laughs) anyway, anyway. A, pro- a prodigious poke. I remember being out at a night game once. I think I was with Gene and his friend John Mena, and we were sitting down, and of course you could always sit in the front row right by the field, and we were sitting there looking, and uh, they're out in the uh, on-deck circle but it was before the inning was going to start. Just these two guys swinging their bats, the guys hitting first and the guys hitting second, and waiting for the umpire to say play ball. And one of them was Mike Trout, and the other one was Bryce Harper. <laughs> yep, yep. Should have gotten a picture, huh? Yeah, really, I should have. I didn't, didn't carry cameras in those days, and, and we didn't have phones that could take pictures. <laughs> Over to the mound, Todd, how about right. an American League pitcher who could be a moon? I think I've alluded to him in the defense a little bit, Sonny Gray. I uh, just love, I love with, with Carlos Correa, uh, Jorge Polanco at second. Um, I, I, I'm not going to go down the pressure road because I don't know. I always believe in that narrative, but I like Sonny Gray. In Minnesota, and I know. Actually, I was going to say the theme of my choices are all you know players affected by the recent moves because I know we you know we talked a lot of people, some of them before the trades were made, and we've already gotten a lot of names just based upon ADP, etc. So I'm trying to pick out players that have changed because of the moves. Nice change in home run environment uh, for Sonny Gray, obviously in this case as oh, well. Yeah. A oh, huge yeah. advantage for him. Uh, how much of a ERA improvement do you expect based on the fact that he's just going to be in a much bigger, less homer-friendly environment? Yeah, um, it's it's tough to tell because he's always been one of those. Not all his expected has always been different than his his actual. But I think we're looking at a mid mid you know three five to three seven five sort of guy if he can stay healthy. Which which plays? Remember, there's an NLDH now. So it would have organically gone up had he stayed with Cincinnati. So I'm also a little bit of a Sonny Gray guy to begin with. So that may be factored into that. But, I mean, under four for sure. And I think, you know, over 3.5, but somewhere in that range. And a National League pitcher who's a a boon for you? Sorry. Yeah, same idea. And we haven't talked a whole lot about what Chicago's done other than Seiya Suzuki. But with Andrelton Simmons... And Nick Madrigal, who people haven't, you know, we talk about him offensively and, you know, the average, he can pick it. Uh, I've been, I've, I'm not a Marcus Stroman. Well, I'm a Marcus Stroman fan, not for fantasy. I'm now in on fantasy. I now think that the ratios are stable enough that I can 
not worry about the low Ks because when you when you get a picture of that ilk, um, you, you you know I, I get his ratios because I can get a high strikeout guy later. You have to be so confident that those ratios will will be low. And I think with his ground ball nature and with Madrigal and and Dalton Simmons doing the dirty work behind him, uh, I, I I'm I'm back in on well I'm I'm in on Marcus Stroman. There's something to be said for volume as far as pitchers go, too. I had Rick Porcello that great year where, you know, his strikeouts per nine or strikeout percentage wasn't anything to write home about, but, you know, 200-plus innings, you know, he got his strikeouts just on volume alone, and there's something to be said for that. Now let's go to the Baines. These are players you think are overvalued, being overdrafted, might be disappointments this year, and again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a Bane hitter for you? Uh, You know, I'm a a park factor guy, and I know they don't affect everybody linearly. But, man, Jesse Winker is going to have a hard time matching or coming close to the numbers he was able to put up with the Reds. That's just such a big difference. And, um, you know, I think that if people don't take it as much in consideration moving over to the AL in mixed leagues especially, because he was, as they say, a helium guy, I think uh, he he's now could be a disappointment, whereas he was before he's looked to as a, as a, as a profit, sir, profit earner. What about the idea, Todd, and I think you told me this once about another park we were talking about, but Great American Ballpark is good for home runs, but maybe not so good for batting average because it's a small outfield. Maybe the yeah. fielders can get there a little better, whereas Seattle's a great big outfield. Can Jesse Winker maybe lose some home runs but gain some batting average here? Yeah, I, I have to look at the actual numbers because there are other factors involved, and that's kind of what we're talking about with Baltimore earlier with the with the expansion in, in left field. Could help the batting average. Yeah, that 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 is possible. It's absolutely possible, and it depends upon what one is looking for. Now, Winker uh, remains strong in OBP slash points leagues, but um, I I I need to look it up. But I think intuitively you're probably correct in that the batting average is not going to take a big of a dip as is the home run total. Hit over 300 last year in almost 500 plate appearances. So, gosh, you know, if he can add five, ten points to that, and you know, it might, it won't offset all the home runs because home runs are such important events in fantasy baseball. But it ain't nothing either. Uh, we could, should, should no, say yeah, that about right. Jesse Winker. How about a National League right. batter who's a bane? Um, this has to do. We kind of alluded to. We kind of alluded to the Reds. And you know, picture picture the the John Travolta looking around for everybody, uh, Jeff that we see on Twitter. You know, who's Votto going to knock in? This this new I'm going to hit the ball. You know, drive in runs, Joey Votto. He's going to have no one to drive in. So uh, I think that Votto, those that are buying back in, um, I know he's you know, he's not going in the you know in the Freddie Freeman range, of course. But I think he was back in the mixed uh, mixed on the mixed radar. And I think that you know the the, the RBIs just aren't going to be there because there's no uh, there's no B to R in or whatever. There's no uh, whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's no yeah. There's no runner. There's no yeah. So anyway, there's there's no B's to R I. I think or R's to yeah, B I so, or yeah, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So yeah, Votto. Over to the mound again in the American League. Who's a pitcher who could be a bane? Yeah, this doesn't fit the mode I was talking about with trades, et cetera, but. I went to an ADP, and you know I'm going to go down the line until the pitcher that I just wouldn't take where he's drafted, and I stop there. And I stopped on Shane Bieber, and 
I'm not, it's not so much questioning the skills as it is the volume he's going to, and even this is even considering volume down across the board, but the volume he's going to need to warrant his, his draft spot, especially in the, something like the NFPC where there will be inflation, especially with Louis Castillo and Zach Wheeler and even Shane Boz getting some injuries now. Um, I don't think that, that, that he'll get the volume needed to merit where he's being drafted. When you say you don't think there's enough volume there, how much of a volume drop-off do you expect? Well, I mean, he's he's being he's he's the fifth, sixth, seventh pitcher off the board, and you know, you, all right. So that used to be two hundred innings. So I think you need one hundred eighty, one hundred seventy, one hundred eighty innings to to get that now. And I think based upon what he's pitched the past couple of years, I don't see him going much past one hundred fifty. Now you could say that that's close enough, and you you don't at that point you're not so interested in profit. You just don't want to lose. And, and when he's out, you can backfill somebody. But I think the other point being there are other pitchers at his draft capital that I prefer over over Shane Bieber. I've heard the argument that, hey, look, Shane Bieber, nearly 100 innings last year in about half of a full season's worth of starts. So if you just double his double his starts, he'll double his strikeouts and his innings and everything will be fine. But I think mm-hmm. you're right. I think that uh, at this point, because of the injuries, I think that Cleveland has to be very close to the vest when they're figuring out what Shane Bieber's going to do, or whoever team he gets traded to. No, I, I, I yeah, no, yeah. Well, I, I agree. I hope. I mean, I like watching Shane Bieber pitch. So, as a baseball fan, I hope the the old Shane Bieber returns because you know he's the kind of guy you watch on TV and you think I could have hit that, and then you know, but no, you couldn't. <laughs> Yeah, Mike Trout missed it. Probably your chances aren't so good. <laughs> and finally, how about a National League pitcher who could be a bane? Uh, similar, similar, but not doesn't have to do with injuries. It, it's Sergio Alcantara, and it, 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 he, I, the you mentioned before volume for strikeouts, and that's what you know, over two hundred innings. Yeah, he could improve the strikeout rate and make me make me do another mea culpa next time we talk. But I think he's being drafted, assuming another 200 inning season and that's just so hard to uh to achieve in today's game and uh, again relative like what I, you know again i went i started at the top and which of these pitchers would i just say no and when i got to alcantara i said no he's like a 10th or 12th off the board i think i have him 18th to 20th doesn't seem like much but again that's four or five or six guys i would prefer at his draft cost Todd Zola's Boons, Bobby Dahlbeck of Boston, Andrew McCutcheon in Milwaukee, Sonny Gray in Minnesota, Marcus Stroman of the Cubs, his Baines, Jesse Winker, now in Seattle, of course, uh, Joey Votto hanging around behind in Cincinnati wondering what the hell happened, uh, where did everybody go kind of situation, Shane Bieber in Cleveland and Sandy Alcantara down there in Miami. Uh, Todd, this has been terrific. Uh, remind our listeners where they can keep up with Todd Zola, and we'll warn you, listeners, it's you want to write this down? There's a big list. <laughs> well, and I'm I'm even keep keeping some of it between me and me and the uh, the firewall. But yeah, so ESPN, uh, and once the season started, be doing some work with them. But Rotowire, the Rotowire podcast, uh, doing some uh, XXM for them and, and helping fill in for for the uh, I don't say departed Chris List because he's still very much alive, but he's no longer with Rotowire. So I'm working with Jeff Erickson on Mondays and Tuesdays. Um, uh, on Saturdays with Clay Link on the MLB Network Radio, 
and uh, my my piece that you know my mea culpa can be found at Rotowire, and uh, I'll be my other work there as well. And we'll get in once the season starts to start pitching and ranking teams, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, and uh, you know, once every month or six weeks with uh, with the fine folks at HQ Radio. And Masters Ball, the projections, that's where the projections are, right? Yes, sir. Projections, draft, uh, draft, uh, not not software like Rotolab, but draft trackers. And this season, knock on wood, I'm going to do more in-season stuff. I'm going to gonna float back into some DFS, et cetera. So I'm going to do some more in-season rankings on the site, which is one reason why we expanded the Platinum offerings a bit. Um, so I'm going to start working on that soon, getting the tables ready and and so, yeah, we're going to expand the in-season uh, features products at Masters Ball. Well, Todd, this has been terrific. It's always fun to talk with you about baseball and and other things. Uh, every time we get into a conversation, it seems like I learn something, I laugh a lot, and I have a lot of fun. So thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again during the season, I'm sure. Looking forward to it, PD. Todd Zola writes at Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN. He appears regularly on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio, and of course he's on lots of podcasts, including this one. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 22nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 9 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I want to thank our guests for this Tuesday Tout Edition, Todd Zola for Masters Ball and Rotowire and Sirius XM. I'm glad to say he's a frequent guest of our show and a top-flight fantasy baseball thinker and writer. I love talking with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Pocket Cast or iTunes, Apple Pods, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with a Friday full edition featuring bullpen talk with Baseball HQ columnist Doug Dennis and the long-awaited return of Alex Becky's frequent flyer. That's coming up Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. I'll talk to you Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.